everybody. Good afternoon. Hope you guys are be having a lot of fun, almost wrapping up here the second day, but we're so happy that you guys are here with us. Um, so I'm going to be, I don't know, the 20th person to welcome you to the conference, but that's okay. Welcome to the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference 2023. My name is Diego Carrasquillo. I'm a first year MBA student here at Sloan, and I have the privilege to introduce you to this amazing panel, uh, the ultimate team sport, building better football rosters with analytics. Our panelists today are Thomas Dimitrov, CEO of Sumer Sports, Jacqueline Davison, she's a Senior Director of Football Research for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Kevin Demoff, COO of the LA Rams, and Steve Palazzolo, Head of Production for the Football Division at Pro Football Focus. Our panel will be moderated by Seth Walder, analytics writer for ESPN. So you guys are gonna be in good hands today. Um, just some logistics, the panel's gonna go for about 45 minutes, and then we're gonna leave 10 minutes for questions. If you do want your questions submitted and read, please do so by submitting your questions via t Twitter and using the hashtag Football Analytics. Take it away, Seth. Sure, thank you. Uh, it's been really fun over the last couple days at the conference, walking the halls, going to dinner, and at the bars, and everyone's kind of talking about like, you know, what should the Bears do with the number one overall pick? And, what should the Giants do with Jones and Barkley and, and what are the Ravens ought to do? And it, it occurred to me that like all these football conversations were roster building conversations and it's the off season. So like that's that's what we're thinking about. And we're all nerds. So we're all thinking about it in like a, an analytical way. And it got me really fired up for this panel because those are interesting questions. But we got the experts right here. And so that, that's really cool. And I'm excited to be able to talk to all of you guys. I think. Before we get in, we're going to get into the football. We're going to talk positions and quarterbacks and, and, and all that. But I think it's important probably, or I hope so, that to think about like how organizationally do you set yourself up for success to be able to, before you make those decisions, how do you make sure you're getting all the best information? Um, and so I think, Kevin, I'm going to tee you up first. That's okay. Awesome. <laughs> If, if you're, let's say you're blank slating, right, and you've got a new, new organization and, and you and the GM and the owner and you decide, hey, we want to be really data-driven in the way that we put together this roster. I think what I'm wondering is like, okay, what happens next? How do you, how do you set yourself up for success? Well, I think it's like any organization. You have to build it with good people top to bottom with the strategy in mind. It's not just we're going to use data. You're going to have to get, obviously, you're going to have to go hire a group of people people who you like, who can produce the data, analyze it, but then the people in charge of your organization, be it your college scouting director, your pro scouting director, your coaches, they have to be involved in the process as well. Mm -hmm. You can't just have a data organization that lives and produces things and nobody uses. And so I think ultimately, philosophically, if you're starting an organization from scratch, your head coach, your GM, your coordinators, your directors of personnel, they're all going to understand that you're gonna push the envelope in terms of trying to analyze data. But you're also gonna to have to be willing to find people who are willing to give up their preconceived notions of how you build a team or what they think to be able to move to where the data tells them. And I think one of the hardest challenges we have in football, even for the teams that are advanced, are you still get wedded to maybe the ideas you had from data three or four years ago, and people will still repeat those without realizing that the data now is taking you in very different places. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I think we want to come back to like integrating with those with coaches and scouts and 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 everyone else in the building. Thomas, you've you know you've sat in the chair, you've been a GM, you've gone through it. When you were building 
the Falcons. What worked in terms of getting data to you? And if you were to do it again, what would you, what would you change? There's one line you didn't add. I also have been fired because of <laughs> roster moves, of course. So Kevin, Kevin knows the, the league that way. I was just going to say, too, you put 32 general managers here right now in front of us, and they would all raise their hands and say, roster building, acquisition, evaluation is, of course, not an exact science. And it's honestly, they, if they had their druthers, they would take the data that's available and make their moves that much better, that much more sound, that much more thought out. And uh, that needs to be done. And I do believe, and I say this with all due respect to presidents in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the league, I think, again, respectfully and humbly, I think there is a responsibility to the ownership and the president, GM, and the head coach to be open to use, utilizing the data that's out there. Because I believe it's criminally underutilized. I might not have said that a few years ago, but now where I am and I look back and I think there are so many mistakes made that I think uh, the, the world is, is all of... Uh, the oysters of uh, you know all of the data people out there. It's going to be an amazing, it's going to be an amazing evolution in the league uh, as Kevin and I are looking the next five years. There's going to be some really really important people in high level spots who are obviously from the data side. So if it's criminally underutilized and you're the GM and you're entering free agency, what looks different for you today than it than it did say five years ago? Well, I think we we tend to as football people we tend. Generally speaking, we tend to look at all the character side. We look at, you know, talking to the head coach, which is vital, right? Because the, the coach and their staff have, have such an acute idea of how they want things to come together. And oftentimes we're not looking at, you know, the, the surplus value, for instance. And, and I will say that has to do, and Kevin knows this very well, it has to do with the, the horizon for that organization, right? When you're just starting off, it's one thing. But if you're on the hot seat, and believe me, I have been on the hot seat. That's not easy. And your, 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 your frame of, of reference is nowhere near as long as it should be, right? So um, there's, there's just, again, I think looking at what's out there right now on the data side of things and understanding that you don't necessarily need the best offense, left offensive tackle in the world to win a Super Bowl. We know that. Many years ago, we thought we had to get all of our pillar positions in check, mm. and that's not necessarily the case. That's interesting. Jackie, running the Bucks research group, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, you gotta sometimes sell this research. You gotta show why, why, why it matters. What is the most effective way to do that? Um, I think the, probably the most effective way is to, everyone wants someone who makes their jobs easier, but not necessarily who comes in with the idea that you know everything. So as long as you can show that you're answering a pertinent problem that is going to help um, a general manager make a decision that can aid a, a scout in terms of how they look at a player of who, or who they're looking at or help a coach make a decision, then showing that that's a benefit, I think that's the, the most effective way to communicate that information. That makes sense. Okay, so I, I want to transition and talk about literal, literally football and, and starting from this place where, like, you know, you guys are sitting in the chair. We, I think we all on the stage agree data is important when you're, when you're talking about roster building. So I, I like it. Let's, I'm hoping we can imagine, like, let's remove the constraints. Like, you get to make the, the choice you want to make. Um, and I think there's no place more critical than position, positional value for this, for this conversation. It's, it's so critical in the league. Here's where I want to start this, and I thought this at like one in the morning last night, so I haven't prepped these guys, but I'm just going to read you a list of, <laughs> list of positions. 
in, uh, in my scientifically ordered order of importance. This is just, just my take, and then I want to hear where I went, where I was wrong. So quarterback. Wrong. <laughs> so far we agree. <laughs> Wide receiver, edge, corner, tackle, safety, defensive tackle, center, guard, tight end, linebacker, running back, special teams. Where were my errors? The bottom sounds right. The top sounds right. No, I think, I mean, quarterback's a whole different world. When do we want to open up the quarterback discussion? Right, okay. So let's hold off on that for a second. I think the receiver being two, I completely agree with. And I think the league finally caught on last year. I think we saw last year in the offseason, if you couldn't get elite quarterback, you went and got elite receiver. Alpha receiver who we've seen, A.J. Brown, Tyreek Hill, become force multipliers for their teams. And I think that in Jamar Chase versus Panay Sewell. When that big debate, my hometown, Cincinnati now, do the Bengals who just had Joe Burrow hurt because of bad pass blocking. The, 10 years ago, they're, tra- they're drafting the left tackle. They're drafting the tackle over the receiver. But, but they drafted Jamar Chase and he has transformed that offense. And so I think that top, at least I agree with, quarterback and receiver, and I think the league's starting to catch on to that. Do you guys agree that wide receiver is the most important non-quarterback position? No. No. I <laughs> love it. Jack, Jack, Jack. Probably not. <laughs> okay. No, but I think to challenge Steve's point, and it, look, this is, you can take 2022 as a sample size or others. Devontae Adams did not transform the Raiders. Agreed. Tyreek Hill made the Dolphins better. They didn't win a playoff game. We increased Cooper Cup's pay. We didn't win a playoff game. Right? And so I think you can start to look at the big deals for receivers last year, and I feel like I'm leaving someone out. I don't think that's an abstract. I think what was interesting about your question is positional value is based on your organization, your coaches, your schemes, and also where the league is headed. It's not, I don't think it's in theory of independent of what you run and how you do it. You know, an offensive line is going to be more important to some teams than it is going to be to others. And that may change based on the way you are. I think you could look at the Chiefs a few years ago when they didn't invest in the offensive line. They got lost in the Super Bowl. Jackie's got a ring because of it. Now they invest in the offensive line. They're not investing in receivers, right? So I think there's a lot of recency bias, but also how teams evolve that I don't think you – I think one of the things I always believe in football is you can't get wedded to this is most important. It is what is most important to your organization. Mm-hmm. Can I comment? Because, Steve, in no way was I categorical about no. Because I – Julio Jones, like, I mean, I put my career on the line for a receiver. My God, how, how thoughtful was that or not? But I will say, I mean, I, I, I would say the DN. I mean, I'm a rush guy. I just believe that. Now, unfortunately, we messed up on two rushers. I mean, look at Vic Beasley and look at Tack McKinley. We thought we were pulling together a team that was going to be special moving forward with the Falcons with that pick. I do believe that's so important. I mean, Kevin knows that, how important that position is. I get it. I love the receiver position, and yet... I'm just, I'm just thinking, and we learned from, from Bill Polian, right? Surround that quarterback with, with the right talent. And I think a young quarterback having the right talent around him has a great opportunity to, to, to you know, achieve what he, he should be achieving. So. And I know we're talking about like a linear list, and it's clearly not that. Um, and I view the positional value thing not necessarily as who we're going to pay the most, but I look, at the, I look at the list of which positions do I want strong or which positions do I not want weak. And I think that's where we want to rethink things as position units. 
Um, so when I look at receivers, I look at the Bucks when they won. You know, they didn't have, there was, there was no such thing as too many weapons. They got more weapons, more perimeter players to throw to. But you guys had a great group of pass catchers. So I look at it as the unit and what you want to be really strong and what you just don't want to be really weak. I think it's also, it's hard to, to Kevin's point about what you're doing within your organization, it's hard to make that list too without knowing how much each one of those units cost. Because we are dealing with a constrained environment where you can afford to be, you know, you may identify places where you want to be strong or not as strong, but knowing how, I mean, the first three positions there in today's market is going to take up 90 to $100 million of your salary cap. So just in terms of thinking through it that way and knowing that, okay, I spend 20 million to 40 million here. This is 20 to 40 million that doesn't go to make the rest of that any better. So if there's an edge to be found, it's finding the value with the cost associated and the difference. I mean, I think so. I think when we, you know, there was a panel talking about the uh, how old Moneyball is, will be 20 years now. It started with that idea, right? That we're trying to find things that other people are undervaluing. We're trying to, we're paying for on-base percentage when everyone else is, is paying for home run production and things of that nature. So I think, especially with, I mean, we've seen salaries explode all over the board from, I mean, we got tackles, our highest paid guards, our highest paid D tackles, highest paid DNs, everybody's making 20 plus million. And even though the cap is steadily increasing, so is everything else, like our, our operating in-season costs increase. So where can you find that edge to say, you know what, at this juncture, before we all copy each other, the league is undervaluing this. Let's try to find that and, and maximize it. Yeah, I think that's the answer to Steve's question, right? Like, receiver is valuable, but last year the top receivers jumped 7 to $8 million at the top, right? The league is such a copycat league, it jumps. Is that still positional value? And I think to Jackie's point, you know, people always talk about football analytics being somewhat behind, I think, when they talk about maybe the game. But I think in terms of roster building and positional and coaching, football's always been about analytics and the data, the 4-3 versus the 3-4. The 3-4 came about because it was easier to find big fat guys once pass rushers got really expensive. Cover two was, hey, we can play slower corners because they're undervalued in the league and pay them less, and the Colts did that. And I think you get to, you know, then Seattle, when they went to taller, longer corners, were valuable because you could get Richard Sherman in the fifth round, not the first round, right? The league has always, coaching has always been ahead of analytically, hey, these guys are valuable, they're undervalued, it's what we can do. And I think that is always where this league evolves, and you have to be really careful about chasing trends because you're usually then paying, whether it's in draft capital or salaries, for where the rest of the league is gone, which means any surplus value is gone. So I, 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 this is for anybody. I fully recognize you two are about to enter free agency, but given Maybe. the current landscape, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> given the current landscape, is there a position we feel like is undervalued at this moment in terms of its impact? Steve, I know you're chomping at the bit on that one. Specific, I mean, I don't know if there's a specific position. It really does come to, I mean, I, again, I look at receivers not as they all need to be making $28 million, but I look at, I want to have many of them, both tactically from a week-in, week-out basis, because, again, it's a, pass, it's a passing league. We hear this a million times. It's a passing league, and it's, it's challenging to cover three and four targets in a given week, and it's, you know, so on both sides. 
So I look at it more, not so much in like a specific position that's undervalued, but properly attacking receiver with, with volume and properly attacking, say, your secondary with volume. Because I think, that, I think that's where the edges are in the NFL because nobody, most people aren't working with Patrick Mahomes and most people have to elevate their quarterback and need that volume at receiver. I'm just a big believer in the tight end position. I just think there's so much there. We, with Matt Ryan, when we ended up acquiring Tony Gonzalez as a, as a free agent for us back in nine, when he was in his infant stages as a quarterback, it was such a high percentage shot. We see it. We see some of the best athletes out there are amazing at, at that position. If I might very quickly, you're talking about the value. The, forever in the NFL when we've been scouting and we've been working through our metric trees, we have, we have not truly weighted the positions as you're talking about. Not weighted the positions, but we also within the positions and within the specific um, metric trees, so let's just say there's 10 metrics for the receiver, we've just randomly, generally speaking, some, some teams are probably more advanced, we just attach a number and then we move on. And that number churns out a 65 grade, hypothetically, and we, we move on. But we're literally not weighting the difference between athleticism and agility or ball skills. And there's so much more to dig into. This comes back to data. This comes back to, it's, it's at the very base level in the organization and evaluating players. If your GM is allowing the, the scouting staff to continue to randomly attach numbers, then I think we've become so subjective. And I think the move forward into the, into the future in this league is about really trying to hone in on what's objective, what we can take care of, and in the subjective areas, really trying to figure out how we can bridge the gap somewhat. I'm glad you brought up that process. That's kind of what I want to ask about next, which is when we think about positional value and, and for your team, like Kevin said, it, it might be team dependent on what, what matters most to you. But where in the process, let's take, let's take the draft, for example, where in the process is the, are you putting that input in? Are the scouts looking at running backs differently than defensive ends? Or does that come after, or does that come in the, the board level? Or is it on draft day where you're adjusting? Uh, you know, is, I'm curious how these organizations operate. I have strong feelings about it, but I don't want to dominate the conversation from a <laughs> scouting standpoint. I'd love to. Well, Kevin, when's the last time you had any picks? So. <laughs> I think uh, before this conference started, 2005. Well, somebody had to take the shot, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I've been wondering the same question, right? Like, when do you put a, a draft board together? So B. John Robinson's in this draft, great running back. And if the, if the scouts say he's the fourth best player in the draft, is there a board that says he's the fourth best player in the draft, which might be fair, but then when you go to draft, it doesn't mean you're taking him at four. So where, the, that's the question, right? Like, where does that come in? Do you say he's at four, but I'm not taking him till 25, 35, six? What's, how do you factor that well, in? Well, it's a very good question. And, and most teams, uh, is their, their approach is pyramidal, meaning the area scouts are, are providing what they can provide, not only in the areas that they're evaluating, but the research that they, they, they do, not taking away from the area scouts, but it moves up to the regional scouts, the national scouts, the personnel directors, and the GM and the head coach at the very top in the end. And so it's a, it's a fascinating process that has been, at times, I think, watered down, back to my earlier point, that we need to utilize and be more exact with those, with those moves. And, and I, look, I've been there many times, and I'm not proud of it, Kevin. 
I'm sitting there as a, as a general manager with a head coach thinking, all right, I've, we've listened to millions and millions of dollars worth of op opinions, but in the end, we're sitting in there at night, the day be night before the draft with Arthur Blank, and we're saying, we're going to move this guy up here from a 59 to a 65. And, and how did that happen? Resetting the draft board, You're right? Resetting the draft board. And it's, it's, a, it's, a interesting, it's an interesting process that I think, again, I think hindsight, raise my hand that I probably made mistakes, or not probably I did. I would do it differently next time. Yeah. I, I always think that, and I think Thomas is not alone in those conversations. What happens in the draft process, if you have a need, and this isn't exactly your question, those players get inflated from the beginning. Mm. You're looking for the positives of, hey, I need a linebacker, so I'm going to make this linebacker pool look better. It's rare that, you know, I, I think your example of a 5'9 to a 6'5 happens less frequently than the guy who actually is a 5'9, got a 6'5 grade along the way because you needed the guy, right? And so then you look at the end, you're like, oh, they have the same grade, and it's probably not true. You probably have inflated the grade. I think your question about, you know, Bijan Robinson, or I think if you have him as the fourth best player, you should take someone there, right? Like, ultimately, draft picks, you know, the NFL is a world of assets. Draft picks are an asset, cash is an asset, and if you can get a really good asset on your team, and it might be untraditional, sure, take the running back, because yes, you might be able to get, would I take him over a great defensive end who's sitting there at the same grade? No, but you get into trouble when you start to move around or think, or say, hey, I'm gonna trade back, that's fine. But ultimately, football's a game about building the best team that you can, and if running, if someone stands out at a position and you have a use for them, that you think can make your team better, or they can make your offensive line better, I always think you should do it. Now, at the same time, I would say when we look at the board, because our board and our GM last came under Thomas, you know, we have all the positions across the board. It's rare that guys are, have really different grades. Now, you're sitting there going, hey, someone needs. But what we'll do more often is a year from now, we have two corners who are coming up in free agency. So we need to start to plan ahead with these picks. And I, that drives it more than positional value. It's starting to think a year or two ahead in your planning, and that carries more weight and might push someone up. But if all else is equal, take the best player you think is going to make a difference for your team. But we're in the, pro we're in the process. Like, okay, like B. John Robinson's one thing. Let's say it's a punter. It's a really good punter. At some point, you've got to say, like, well, I'm not taking him at four. If, right? Well, if, if, it's, if it's Tampa Bay, then we'll take a kicker at any time. <laughs> um, Jokes go both sorry, ways. Yeah. Go, <laughs> any time. Um, I mean, those are conversations that, that are had during meetings. They're had going up to the draft, just knowing exactly. Because one of the things about, you know, we talk about you know, art versus science. But a lot of the draft, too, assuming that, to Kevin's point, players aren't wildly different, right, when you get to a certain spot, is getting, is not only who you pick, but kind of where you can pick them. Can you, can you pick up additional, you know, can you pick up additional players? I understand what he's saying in terms of if you, if you, if you like a guy there, don't overthink it, take him. But if there's a guy, realistically, if I'm picking at 16, that I think I can get at 22 and I can pick up an extra pick here and there, then that's something that you have to think about. But that, that thought process should take place before the, the night of. And I mean, even the night of, you're finalizing and saying, okay, this is what we said. We initially, we traded back last year out of, out of the first round um, into the first pick of the second. And two players on the board, happy to get either one. 
It was just an, a method to pick up another pick. Now, again, if we're talking about a kicker, then we don't trade back at all. We take that guy. But that, that's, a, <laughs> but that's a team thing. You know, who's, who was important to you and who, who can you um, – who are you kind of indifferent as much as you can be to picking one versus the other? Great point. Viability, and I think viability is a wave of the future for general managers. We have to determine viability. When I'm sitting there at 20 and I'm calling up and down the line, you guys know that. I mean, you guys probably used to get sick and tired. Why is Dimitrov calling again about a trade? But I was up and down the line always searching for the trade, and, if, and I need to have an idea of how far to move up or how far to move back. And if, if we can get closer to the viability, it makes me make, I think, better decisions. And if I may, the last question or point, Kevin made categorically all of the decisions that I've made that have failed were all driven by intense need. Mm. And, and unfortunately, oftentimes it's a defensive end or it's, you know, whatever. It's, it's the positions that you know you need to, you know, get you over the hump. And that, that's, that's stung me way too many times. And, and I think to follow up on that, and to Thomas's point, I think we all do it. The hard part about the NFL is when you're in a life cycle where coaches last maybe three years, and where we've screwed the league up, I think really on the whole, is now GMs are on a two to three year cycle. There's no, nobody's sitting there thinking long term. The people who have the ability to sit there and think long term are the ones who have won and have security, right? So of course their decisions get better and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that's one of the real, even go back to your started question, like how would I do it with data? One of the reasons we're having more success now with the Rams last year aside is because now we, on this program, we have five, six years of data that we've collected, that we've drafted off of, that we've seen, okay, these players succeed. These players don't with this data. Like Our data gets better and better. It gets more refined because we've had the luxury of having the same head coach and GM now for seven years. That's vastly different than a league that just turns over half of its coaches every two years, and now the GMs have come to that cycle. The need drives it, and I think so many people are like, oh, why did they go for need? Well. You know, you don't want to be sitting there saying two years from now, I wish I had addressed this position because you just don't get that shot anymore. I think I want to stay on draft trades because I think it's sort of interesting and maybe it plays into what you're talking about. I think, you know, it's been 15, 17 years since the Massey-Thaler paper. And I'm curious, firstly, if, if you all feel like trading down in general, if the, if the data that you see still indicates on average a value to trade down based on the current market prices? I don't, I mean, I don't know if, if the data is ever going to say anything different. Okay. And the reason why I say that is because it's, we're making educated guesses and we're, we're gambling to a certain extent. The more, you know, the more scratch offs you can get, the better your chance of winning. It's not, um, so I don't think you're ever going to have, again, abs absent the quarterback, yeah. a situation where it, 100% makes sense to, to trade up and limit those, those potential picks later um, just, because of, just because of the number and, and the uncertainty that you're dealing with. I mean, we usually don't pick until like Sunday or Monday, so by the time we get a chance to pick, trading down seems like a really bad idea. You get as many picks as you want yeah. in undrafted free agency. But I, I think, you know, if you want, and it gets back to what we've been talking about here, F them picks? F, F them yeah. picks. <laughs> but uh, one of the reasons we started trading our first rounders was in the new CBA system, you were looking, you know, if you were thinking you were going to pick 20 to 32, not six. Um, the, <laughs> the data of the options of 
the fifth-year options of players getting picked up in 20 through 32 was starting to fall below 40% down to 30%. And you were saying, okay, if I'm picking 20 through 32, there's a 30% chance that I'm going to give this player a fifth-year option. Well, that's not a great chance. Like, I'll trade that for certainty. But what was even more striking was the play, one of the reasons that was happening wasn't the players were great, is the players who did well 20 through 32 were guards, linebackers, you know, safety, people who probably were worth less theoretically in a positional value model. And so you're like, well, do I really want to get the best linebacker and then pay them? And so we started to opt out of that. And I think that's one of the things that I don't think you trade down solely because I think the one thing, and if you go to the, the paper, you know, which is still prevalent, I think you trade down because you do know if you study history that we are not that much better at selecting players. And usually, as Jack said, if you have two players, the difference between the two is probably statistically irrelevant, right? We have an overconfidence in thinking we can pick the better player of the two. So if you have two players, you're better off moving down and getting an extra pick and taking one of the two players. That gives you more chances, right? That's the whole theory to me of trading down is getting rid of the overconfidence level that we can select a player because it gets back to what we talked about being. That if you have two players, you may, you've moved someone up. All the reasons that you might make a wrong pick, you're trying to take away by trading down. And I remember, I mean, we, Thomas called up in 2019, the last time we actually had a first rounder, we had picked 31. And we moved back from 31 with Thomas. He took Caleb McGarry. And we kept going all the way back to 61 when we finally took Taylor Rapp, who was our emergency pick at 31 if we couldn't make a trade. So it wound up working out. Taylor played four years from us, won a Super Bowl, but Caleb McGarry wound up being a good player for the Falcons. I think we're starting to see more of a tipping point there too, right? Because the Jimmy Johnson chart is still in use, but every team has their own charts and various charts and models of all the charts and all that stuff. We saw the Vikings move from 12 to 30 last year. We see models out there that are saying if you moved from 12 to pick up 65 and 66, which sounds crazy on the surface that the difference isn't that, that, that much because, because of that, because of uncertainty. And it is interesting when you go back and look at that, it's like in one year you might miss out on a Micah Parsons at 12, but other years, 65 and 66, you're getting two starters instead of one at, at similar levels. And it, I, I feel like that might be going in the extreme level for some organizations where they might be trading down what looks like a crazy move on the surface, but they're running the numbers and saying, you know what, we, we do want that many more lottery tickets. Is that, is that crazy? It's like, I think what Steve's referencing is, is like if you use a chart that uses surplus value, so we're thinking about not just the, not just like which player comes out, but how much you're gonna have to pay them. The 65 and 66 guys aren't gonna make as much as the 12. Like, that's what charts like that show. Is that, is that crazy? Go ahead, Jackie. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's crazy. I think um, some of it goes back to, to two things that we mentioned earlier and something Kevin said about, one, the window, and the window everyone has to win now, this three-year period, this overconfidence in our ability to pick players, and the idea that unlike other sports leagues, right, we pick a first-round pick, he's playing that year. Mm. Whereas, you know, you pick a first-rounder in hockey, uh, with the exception of the top three picks in basketball and in baseball, you may not see him for another three, four years. Um, so it's, it's kind of hard, I think, for most people to take that chance and say, okay, I'm going to take 12, where I know if I have a list of the top 15, 
I know I'm getting a stud and then trade back to get 66 or 65 and 66, even though on, on average, it's probably going to be a better move. I still think it's, it's, it's a hard move to do. Um, notwithstanding the fact that the, the surplus model says to, to do that more times than not. Because I may not you, be here for you that. Do it on average. If, if you if you had, if you didn't have to worry about job security and anything else, you're just trying to win Super Bowls. Like, would you do that on average? No players, just on average, uh, probably. I think the one danger that that you run into with just looking at the surplus model, because we go back to the Jimmy Johnson trade chart, it's really just an exchange rate, right? It's not telling you necessarily what the picks should be worth. It's telling you what they're worth. And I think any time you continually, to the market, from the market standpoint, undervalue your own assets, you're doing it to your future detriment. So I think you could, you could do that once or twice, but because every other time, if, you know, if, if, if I'm on a team and Kevin calls us up and he knows he can get my first round pick for three cents on the dollar, then every time everybody else is gonna want it for three cents on the dollar. I think the other thing, too, is, and this is why roster building is great because everybody does it differently, but at some point you need great players to win. And usually those great players come from the top half of the first round. I mean, if you can pull back any Super Bowl winner over the last 10 years, you know, those are the players that ultimately make a difference. Now, the rest of your roster, need, you need to hit on 65 and 66. So. You have a strong, if you have four or five great players and you can move back to 65, 66, great. If you're at the beginning of your process and you need more players to fill out your roster, but at some point the unique thing in football, and I, I can't speak for other sports, is ultimately you need that one person yeah. who's going to tilt the field and be a difference maker for you. And if you're sitting there and you need that player and there's a defensive end, a corner, a receiver, a tight end, you need to sit there at 12 and take them because – 65 and 66 may help you over the long term, but they may be, you know, a backup, a nickel corner, ultimately who becomes a starter. That's really good long term, but they may not be the player who makes the ultimate difference in the Super Bowl. For edification purposes, the, the Jimmy Johnson trade chart, I had called many, many teams over the last six or seven years, and we, we've made this interesting adjustment, right? Responsible teams are taking Jimmy Johnson, they're adding two, three, or four more charts within their, uh, within their algorithm, whatever they're, however they're presenting it. And now they're, they're that much more educated when they make their choice. We made choices off of Jimmy Johnson. I mean, I am, again, those first five years of my career, I mean, making like haphazard decisions off of something that we know was completely antiquated. No, no offense to him, but that's what we were using. And you'd call a team up and they'd say, we have our own chart. We don't really care about your chart. We don't, really don't care about Jimmy Johnson chart, i.e. the Bengals, and we might not, we might not get a, a, a deal done. So I just think moving forward, there's, there's so much more back to the data available to make sound decisions. And I will say, last thing, when you're in that seat as a general manager, it's easy to say, I'm looking, I'm trading back. I get that. Now, I've not been active trading back a whole bunch. I get it. I've taken a lot of heat for it. I understand that. But to Kevin's point, um, when you, it's not only you as a general manager, it is a head coach in your ear all the time. It's an owner in your ear. There are so many layers that are beyond just the, 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 the categorical analytic element that is, might be, I say this respectfully, a little more you know, easier for you to say. Easy. It's yeah. easier. I've never made a bad decision. No. 
personally. <laughs> but, this is easy yeah. from my seat. Yeah, Look, I, just, I think that's tough though, right? At one point, all of these picks become players, right? I mean, we could ask the audience, can anybody name who Cleveland got for the picks for Julio Jones? Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, it's not a pretty list. And that's not a knock just on Cleveland. Like, you, when you ultimately, when you look back on a lot of trades, they're not as exciting in hindsight as the surface value, you know, becomes. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting about what Thomas said, though, too, like, when you're on the clock, and Jackie knows this, when people call him for trades, you'd be like, well, I've got the Steve chart and so-and-so is the Jack chart. You're like, I don't care. Like, we have 30 seconds to make a deal. Let's pick a common currency. And that usually still winds up being the Jimmy Johnson chart. Like, as crazy, we have, and we have a system that has five models, and we calculate it all. And, like, usually if three of them say go, we'll go. Like, we don't need all of them to say it. Because at the end of the day, if the team you're dealing with is, you know, doing English pounds and you're offering, you know, the one, it doesn't matter. You all have to come up with the same currency, and that is, I think, where people value it differently. And I do think you have to have enough confidence as a team to not care once you make the trade how people evaluate it just based on math because you may be doing different math than them. Real quick, Thomas, you go back in time, you still trading up for Julio Jones? Do I, would you I still trade up for Julio I would, Jones? I would still trade up for Julio Jones. You mean you don't want Brandon Whedon? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, but it's a good question. We, it comes to me all the time and people often ask, you know, would you have gotten fired you know, that many years later if you had not taken Julio Jones? And I think that's kind of, it's, it's, it's a little misleading. Maybe we would have had an opportunity. He had one of the best catches in the history of the world, but we just didn't run, run, run. <laughs> My God, sorry. Why am I supposed to talk about 16? It's a long time ago. It's okay, I get it. Yeah. Okay, I want to shift gears just a little bit. Steve, I know, you're, I know you're passionate about this idea of thinking probabilistically in terms of roster building. Uh, you're GM Steve now. Oh you, boy. Congratulations, you've ascended. Now I can make some bad moves. Um, what's the one thing that you're doing, especially if it's a contrarian that, we do, that teams don't do, what's the, what's the one thing you're doing that you think is putting that into action, thinking probabilistically about roster building? So I want to bring up the QB idea because without sitting in the seat, it's challenging, right? You talk about the human elements and all that stuff. So the Bears are sitting here with an option, right, to either take Justin Fields, who had the makings of being a star last year, but Bryce Young's on the board or another quarterback's on the board. Until you have your guy, until I have my guy, do I just keep drafting quarterbacks? And you know, we hear you know, a lot of the NBA panels, you talk about the NBA and it's like, I have to do everything I can to get a superstar, right? I'm either maneuvering in the draft to go get a superstar or I'm creating an environment where a superstar wants to come to me. Should we treat quarterbacks like that in the NFL? where it seems like right now in the NFL, it's not that tough to find a starter, right? There was a point in the NFL where it was tough to find a starter. And that's why you saw anybody who was good in the preseason getting traded for, like, he's my starter. There's probably 30 starting caliber quarterbacks, but there's only five, six, eight that you really want to win with. Do you dr literally draft a quarterback? Would I literally draft a quarterback in the first round? I have to get in the seat to figure this out. In the first round every single year, or if I'm the Bears, do I draft Bryce Young and keep Justin Fields and just let them figure it out? I think that's something that the NFL might need to consider, or is it so crazy because it is tough to have two quarterbacks, three quarterbacks, and actually work through that with the media, the fans, in the locker room. So I might do that. I want to hear what the, what the dynamic is and why that sounds crazy, though. 
Jackie, you want to take it? Sure. <laughs> you going to do this this year? <laughs> I don't, I mean, crazy, no. I think that we've seen what quarterbacks do for a team, how much they elevate a team. I, I, I hope someone writes a book about the, what was it, the Bills, Chiefs, playoff game from two years ago because I think that was the game when people that people watch and figured out having you know above average may not be good enough like you have to be elite and that brings up questions like that as to whether or not we just keep taking one um, until we find the guy now the the problem is is that you run the risk of you run out of time and then whoever comes behind you reaps the benefit of you you know taking taking two guys but there is to the point Kevin made earlier the object of the exercise, right, is to set the trend, not chase it. So from that perspective, knowing what it is, if you have doubts about your current guy or if you just don't know yet, if there's still a level of uncertainty and a guy's there, I don't think it's, it's unreasonable to say, I'm going to take another one. I love that line. The object of the exercise is ultimately as a GM to get that, that quarterback right, and you are – Definitely being judged, I, I believe this, how you not only acquire your quarterback, how you maintain your quarterback, how you re-sign your quarterback, that is a big, big deal. And a lot of GMs go in there with that hanging over their head thinking, my God, I'm going to be judged not for long, three years, I might not be here, it's going to, as Jackie was suggesting, it's someone else coming through the organization. That's an uncomfortable spot to be in. And they have a responsibility to hit it right and move on to the next DN that they might need, Steve, right? As a, as the next year, you're, you're, you're focused on, we're going to finally get a pass rush here. But then you're, you're le- losing on the first-round pass rusher, and you're going to pick another quarterback. Conceptually, it's, it's tough. I, I get it. I would love to be able to do it. I unless, wish I did more of that. I did unless not. you trade fields. Yeah. What's and that? Unless you trade fields, you can do both. Yes, unless that's right. But I think within that, there's this misnomer that we're good at drafting quarterbacks as a league. <laughs> well, that's right? why you're doing this, but, because but, you're not. Sure, but, but you can get to the same point. I'm pretty sure, and someone can check me on this, Jared Goff was the first number one overall pick to make a Super Bowl in a really long time. And I think if you look back, there was like none of the number one picks at quarterback from 2009 through 2018 went to a Super Bowl like with their team or still with their team. I mean, it's a really, when you look at it, all those players got traded. And then you can start to look at whether, you know, it's the Baker Mayfields or the Jameis Winstons. And yes, that can give you the idea that you could keep drafting. But I think if you're going back to the conversation we started this with is the number one pick has immense value, right? It has value to trade down. It has value to get a great player. And unlike other players, unlike the NBA, like you can't field two quarterbacks, right? You can take a second – in the NBA, you can be like, well, we're going to go for another star, but you can find a way to put two players on the floor at the same time. And so the chance – to me, the narrow band you have of trying to improve a quarterback, is that worth it probabilistically over the certainty you would get from drafting another surefire high-level starter – or trading down and getting two or three high-level starters. Sure, if you're going to get Andrew Locke or Joe Burrow, yes. But, you know, and I think back to and this is, you know, Rand Carthon, who worked with us, and I worked with Thomas, you know, was up at the podium in Indianapolis, and he said, you know, I be- and he made a, 
you know, an offhanded joke, which I thought was great. You know, I, the Golden State Warriors are great in September, October, but you need to run the ball and play defense to win in the end. And I, I think there's some adages that are true, and people are like, oh, but Patrick Mahomes won the Super Bowl. Well, Patrick Mahomes wasn't the number one pick. Should have been. Let's, let's agree he should have been. When Patrick Mahomes was 10th. He was the third quarterback, I think, taken in that draft. I mean, Mitch Trubisky was still the first quarterback taken in that draft. And then Jalen Hurts was a second rounder. And then, yeah, I mean, you, there are all kinds of ways. We all get enamored with the number one QB. And I've had, I've had Sam Bradford, and I've had Jared Goff and, and Matthew Stafford. But at the end of the day, successful QBs come from everywhere in the draft. And so I think there's, to me, the question is not whether you would draft Bryce Young. It depends on really whether you think Bryce Young can be a top five player. It's should you be drafting a quarterback every year and invest in that position, which I do think is a different question than whether you would double down at the top. Is what? it, is it, is it, I have a galaxy brain question that I have to ask you, which is given you what you said, which is we're not very good at drafting quarterbacks, and what Jackie said, which is you got to have an elite one, or I think, would you agree, if you don't, everything else on the roster has got to be, got to be excellent. So given that, scale of 1 to 10, how absurd would it be to trade Justin Fields and trade the number one overall pick, move to two or four and take Stroud or Levis or somebody else saying, we're not that good at picking these quarterbacks, so let's get one and like three or four first round picks. <laughs> I like it. You brought that up to me yesterday on the side. I was like, I, I didn't think of that angle. Most people are thinking Bryce Young, trade fields, maybe Bryce Young, keep fields. You're saying, the next, and we're just assuming Bryce, pretend Bryce Young's your one. We're saying take the second or third quarterback on your board. You can tell me I'm, I'm stupid. You know, that, that, that's fair. I mean, we're, we're, but you're, we're highlighting things that won't happen, yeah. like most likely, and that's why, we're, that's why we're here at Sloan, to highlight things that won't happen that maybe we're trying to think probabilistically going forward. This is tougher for them to answer. So, Thomas, are, are well, I, I think you should trade Justin Fields to the Rams for like a seventh <laughs> rounder. <laughs> and, you know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I would say this, I, until, you, until you find one, I don't think any idea is off the table. I think you have to, have to kind of exhaust all avenues and do the mental exercises, look at the data of, okay, to, to Kevin's point, we're not that great at picking them, but can we find one, especially in this draft, between, between these numbers and kind of and work at it from that angle? But I don't... I, Again, looking, going back to what is the objective, what is the question we're trying to answer? We're trying to get a quarterback that we can win with. And what the last, I would say, especially the last five years has shown us, that person needs to be at an elite, an elite level. So until we have, have achieved that objective, I don't know if you can rule like, anything off the, off the table. I agree, I agree 100%. And we have to determine, has he really, you know, has he, have we determined truly what he is yet? Two years in, right? Well, I mean, that's, that's complicated when you're in that seat. Do you really make that next move? I mean, obviously it's not on him, right? I mean, it's on, it's on Ryan Pace. Love Ryan, but I mean, it's, you know, Ryan Poles is not, you know, that's not, he's not worried about that, right? Um, so anyway, I, I do think it's a, it's, a great, it's a great question that you bring up. I personally would think, I think you have to stay there and you have to hang with your quarterback for another year and at least to make sure where he is and where he's developing. That's why it's fun, though, right? Because no, we don't know the right answer, right? Like, I want to go back to the Browns thing, though, right? Because I loved Baker Mayfield going, you know, coming out. Loved it, right? So he goes number one overall. 
they also had the fourth pick that year. So even if you loved Baker Mayfield, what if you, instead of taking Denzel Ward, a, a very good corner, you took Josh Allen. And you said, I love Baker Mayfield. I don't love Josh Allen. I didn't love Josh Allen. Josh Allen's a superstar. You know, so that's the type of thought process. How crazy would it be for Cleveland? Because the thing that would keep me back is, can you actually get a read? Can you actually figure out which guy it is? Can you get enough reps? Can you create the ecosystem to actually make the determination? Would Josh Allen actually have become a star if you thought he was your two? But Cleveland had to make a drastic move at quarterback last year because they missed on Baker Mayfield and they have a nice corner in Denzel Ward. But what if they had taken Josh Allen at four, hypothetically? That's the type of process we're talking about, an extreme view until you get your quarterback. I mean, people forget how much Washington and, you know, Mike Shanahan and Bruce Allen got ripped for drafting RG3 and then drafting Kirk Cousins in the fourth fourth round, right? I mean, and people thought they were insane for doing that, and it turned out to be a very wise decision. This is not always a GM's move, though. It's a GM. You better have the right coach in place. Not only need the right coordinator, you need the right head coach with a great relationship with the head coach. You need... That is vital. You can't just put it on the selection process. You have to make sure that you have the, you know, the creativity to have the right people around them, have the right system to help them develop. I look back when we had Matt Ryan. I mean, we could have killed Matt Ryan out the gate. Luckily, we had Michael Turner. If anyone even remembers who Michael Turner was, that was important for us to have a runner to take the pressure off of Matt. And I think that's important for an organization to understand the coach. One last conversation shift here. I'd love to in a league where you can roll over cap space from year to year or sort of do the inverse, restructure to, to, to borrow from the future, I'm curious everyone's thoughts on essentially asset management within seasons. Like, is it best to concentrate, you know, take, take from the future or from the past and try and push everything into a, a short winning window? Or are you trying to, like, maintain at a level for a long time? I realize we have two Super Bowl-winning teams here. You know. I think we're out of time. Talk- are we good? Are you, like, are you in the window? You want to talk about the window? Are you in the window? <laughs> Look, I think, I think one of the great misnomers of the NFL is that, you know, there is this mythical way to stay good for a very long time. And, and I don't say that to justify what we did. And, and one of my only pet peeve when people talk about the Rams, they're like, oh, you guys went all in in 2021 to win a Super Bowl. That is true. But over the, pre, you know, over the five-year period from 17 through 21, we were the best team in the NFC. We had the most wins. We won three divisions. We went to two Super Bowls. We had a really good five-year run. And last year, we had some struggles. That, if you, I would take that five-year run every time. But we look at, you know, Green Bay has had two Hall of Fame quarterbacks in Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. And I think they've been to two Super Bowls in the past 25 years. I mean, Thomas's rivals, I mean, Sean Payton, Drew Brees, that's as good of a combination as you can get. One Super Bowl, right? You start to, I think of some of the best run organizations, the Ravens, two Super Bowls in 20 years. Like, it is really hard to make a Super Bowl. Even this year, I think when you looked at the final four teams, whether it was San Francisco and Philadelphia and Cincinnati and Kansas City, all of them were worthy of winning the Super Bowl this year. They were really good teams, probably the best teams all year. Only one team won it. So I, I'm of the belief, and I don't just say because we did. I think if you're close, you've got to go for it because ultimately that's what your fans want. That's what you do. I think there's a – but where you have to be smart is understanding are you actually a player or two away or are you talking yourself into whether you're a player or two away. And when we traded for Vaughn Miller, I think we looked at it and said, okay, we truly think 
we're seven and one. We think an elite pass rusher can put us over the top. But I, you know, we've been in other places where, you know, this year when we were three and three and still in the window, I think there was a lot more trepidation of like, are we one player away? Should we not? And we actually stood pat and didn't make a trade. But the goal of this is to win. And I ultimately think that people imagine that there are these mythical teams. And Thomas and the Patriots, I think, skewed everybody to think that you can do what the Patriots did, right? But ultimately, you know, the and you're seeing a little with the Chiefs and Mahomes now. If you have a great quarterback, you can have an extended window. If you don't have a great quarterback, I do think you're trying to maximize your your roster the best way you can to go compete, you know, at a different level. Um, we'll move to we have a few minutes left. We're going to move to questions from the audience here. So one question here is, is it easier to develop a stronger roster by drafting talent or trading for talent, and which option is most cost effective? I think we know what Kevin thought like five years ago and what the, what the Rams have done, but I'm curious why everyone thinks like at this point what's true. Look, I, I, you know, it is fun. The FM picks motto is funny. I think we've also had the fourth or fifth most draft picks yeah. in the past five years, right? Because people don't, we haven't had ones. And I, at one point in our 2021 season, we had 16 players who had been second or third round picks in the previous three or four years. So we had traded down, we had accumulated that, we have a lot of back end picks. I think it just depends on your team. You need, you know, in our model, top heavy, you need a lot of players on the roster who are under contract on rookie deals. So you need a lot of back end picks and you hopefully you hit that. But I think if you're a team that's in a position in striking distance and maybe you've been close, um, I think of a team like Buffalo maybe this year, I might view it differently. Well, I think forever doing what Les did, and I have a great deal of respect for Les, and I love his Maverick approach. I do, and I laud him all the time. That, that's difficult to do, but Les's comments to me had to do with there was, is, there was less precariousness when you know who you're bringing into your organization, good and bad. You could bring someone in who falls asleep in the meeting all the time, blah, 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 but he's excellent when he's on the field. His point to me was, Thomas, we just need to know that we don't get all tied up and worried about it when that kid falls asleep you know, in the meeting room, but he's going to show on the field. As a, I'm a big believer, of course, like most of us who came through the college ranks, you, you draft, you draft, you draft, and you supplement with free agency. It's very different because now we realize we can be creative like less, take a lot of heat doing it, of course, but look what he did. He got to the Super Bowl and he did things. And there's a lot of people out there right now running football teams who are on the edge of their seat wondering about that, if they can get away with it. It is a not-for-long league. I keep saying that. We all know that, but even more now. And, and Kevin knows this. These aren't million-dollar jobs anymore. These are, I'm talking about the GM jobs. It's now they want to parlay it into two, three, and four contracts. There's a lot of money on the table for these guys. It used to be a million dollars. It may now be $6 million. I know you hate... Hate to hear that when you're talking budget, Kevin, but there's yeah. a lot there for those GMs, right? That's why Steve's going to come for cheap. <laughs> I'll do it for cheap. Yeah. I mean, cheap-ish. 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 I mean, it's still built through the draft, right? You guys still built through the draft. You still had to hit on starting linebackers and safeties, but having Jalen Ramsey and knowing what you're getting, it's a combination. It's a combination. You guys knew how to pull those levers because it can't just be one thing or the other. And I mean, tra but trading is building through the draft. Like one of the things they recognized was the value of draft picks to the other 31 teams. Yes. So even if you're not, if, even if they're not your picks, you're still trading those assets for, for players that are known commodities. So it's, it may, it's really, you know, two sides of the same, of the same coin. 
and, and I think it gets to the point, like you go back to the Thaler Massey scale, that was under the old CBA, yeah. right? That, that needed to get updated for the new CBA. And I think in the new CBA, there was an overcorrection to overvaluing top picks. And that was something we took advantage when we started trading for veterans. I think known commodities, you would watch play in the NFL, you knew how they'd fit in your system, and you could supplement them. Now the league has shifted towards everybody's willing to trade picks. I think, you know, we used to believe there was an inefficiency in trading for veteran players, that they were undervalued as a whole. I think the league has overcorrected that. And whether you like, you know, our Matthew Stafford trade, Russell, Matthew Stafford went for basically 50% of what Russell Wilson went for the next year. And Tyreek Hill and Devontae, you know, the deals got more and more expensive. Now that that's happening, Maybe the correction is going to go back the other way now. Maybe it's for picks are undervalued. That's the way this league swings all the time. It's a related question. And when you're thinking about acquiring players through any, through any mechanism, how are you balancing like mean and, and upside, mean and variance? Like when you're, when you're acquiring a player, how much, what's your balance of thought between what I think this player will become most likely, and what the, what the right tail outcome is, what's the top 10 percentile outcome. How much is, are those two things in conflict with one another? I mean, like scouts put a grade on a player and they yes. think, like, yeah. this guy's a six, he's a 6.2. Mm -hmm. And you think, that's what I'm getting, but like, where does prob probability come in that he could be below average, he could be above average, whether it's through the draft or through free agency? Well, I mean, those are the ideas that, that that college to pro projection model, that I'm sure you guys have talked a lot about and worked on. I mean, that, that's a really important thing for an organization. And it's not easy. It's one of the toughest things to do as, as a scouting staff, as a GM, you know, as a head coach who doesn't have a real grasp of it, respectfully speaking, because they're in a different world. That's, that's, gonna, that's a big wave of the future in my mind. Look, I think part of that gets to what we're talking about. The base rates in the draft are the base rates, 50% for first rounders, 40%, 30%, down to you know, seventh rounders of 10 to 15. If you are just drafting off of traits and skills, you're probably going to wind up getting the base rate. Yeah. What you have to do as an organization, like Pittsburgh can draft wide receivers, it seems, in any round at a better rate. But they know what they're looking like. They have a formula that works for them. So our formula for drafting a wide receiver in the second round is probably not as strong is there. So they might walk in and say, we have confidence we're going to exceed the 40%. I think every organization probably has a skill set of taking players based on their schemes, based on what they've historically done to know where it works and where it doesn't. But I think if you just start to assume you're going to exceed the base rate anywhere, you're going to fail. All right. I think we're out of time. I want to thank you all so much. This was super fun. And uh, thank you all for listening. <laughs>